And you can make your way over to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is where we'll be. I know uh, last week, I think uh, Pastor Doug was here preaching on Psalm 34 as part of our, uh, our series in the Psalms. Uh, this week, I'll bring us all the way back to the beginning. Uh, my family was able to go down to Kansas City and enjoy a, uh, a, a nice long weekend. We haven't done that for a long, long time, and it was so wonderful. I, I picked up a cold while I was there. It was great. Uh, there were a lot of other good things that happened um, there as well. But uh, today I get the joy of coming back to the Psalms, which I think was actually, Psalm 1 was, I think, my first sermon I ever preached here uh, when I was candidating. Um, so if you remember that, you can just get up and go. But if you don't, then shame on you. Stay seated. You should have remembered it. Uh, no, it's totally, totally different here because I knew you guys have photographic memories. No, Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is, um, is, uh, is the beginning of the Psalter. Uh, the beginning of the 150 books of the Psalms. And uh, before we get into that, I want to kind of just set up what the Psalms are. What, what are we doing with this series? Why is it called Pursuing God's Heart? Why are we talking about the Psalms for so many different weeks? Um, and so I want to get into a little bit of that. In the short, the Psalms give us the voice that we need when we pray and sing to God. The Psalms give us those truths, those thoughts, those things that we need to feel, those things we need to desire. The Psalms lay for us a, a, a pattern and a way of being. Um, we can read the Psalms and know what to say to God when we pray. Uh, one, uh, one author, Christopher Ashe, he writes, uh, he writes in, a, in a book, he, he writes a lot about prayer, uh, but one of the things he says is the main point uh, of the Psalms is to teach us to pray. If we don't come away from the Psalms knowing how to speak to God, we've missed their entire point. Uh, other authors have argued that, um, that the Psalms are the very words of Christ uh, written uh, in prayers to God. Um, and, and others, and still others, they say, uh, they say that, that we can find a rich blessing of the gospel, that they are a weaving of, of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the truths of God all together to meet in the middle, and we see this huge, wonderful story of God. Now, I think that all three of them are true. I think that these, the Psalms, as we walk through them, we get to see people who believe in God rightly, who are inspired by the Holy Spirit to convey truths, to foreshadow Christ. And we read and get to reconcile some of our own emotions, the good ones and the bad ones. Uh, we get to, we get to uh, understand the words that we use when we speak to God. And we get, to, uh, we get to train our hearts to desire the things of God. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Doug spoke on Psalm 34, which gives a very unique understanding of God uh, for those who, who hunger, for those who thirst uh, for God. Uh, today, I'm going to speak on that desire for instruction. We should desire the instruction of God in any season. When we do desire the good instruction, when we delight in the law of the Lord, we will be able to stand in any trial, in any temptation, in any drought, in any, uh, in any season, because we have grounded ourselves in the truth that is God. Now, I also believe that, that the Psalms point to Christ. So we'll get there, but we, can, we, 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 we miss a big point of the Psalms if we only read them for poetry and then apply them directly to our lives. We need to see that they draw us to a better understanding of Christ. We see that Christ is the law in Psalm 1. We see that Christ uh, is the way in Psalm 1, and we see that Christ is our righteousness 
in Psalm 1. So as we begin, uh, as we begin here, uh, I'd actually ask you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we read all of Psalm 1. Uh, you can follow along with me as I read it aloud. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked, they are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I want to give you a, a <clears throat> kind of a rundown, maybe a picture of what's happening here in Psalm 1. It be Excuse me. It begins all of the Psalms. Psalm 1 and 2 frame up <clears throat> kind of like a forward or a preface how we should read all of the Psalms. <clears throat> Psalm 1 is saying that we need to take all of the Psalms seriously. We need to delight in this. But it's not simply going to tell us to delight in it because you can't just scream at someone, delight, delight, delight. You have to compel them. You have to explain why we delight in this. You have to invite them into that kind of delight. And, the, and Psalm 1 is going to do that beautifully. It's going to hang out. The psalmist is though he's, he's giving us the scales here. He's saying, you're going to make a decision here. You have two options here. You have this way that he's calling in verse 1, the blessed way. Uh, the, the blessed man does this. And then he's going to go on to say the wicked. There's a wicked way. And then he's going to give us, uh, maybe I'll come back to it and explain a little bit of the righteous way. So if you want to break this up into three topics, uh, the blessed way, or the blessed way, the wicked way, and the, uh, and the righteous way. We're going to find that the blessed way and the righteous way are one and the same. But right now he's going to give us a scale. He's going to say, here are two options. Here are two ways to live. So on this side, you have the blessed man. And he does a bunch of stuff, or rather doesn't do a bunch of stuff, and he delights in some things. And then here's the wicked man, and he does some stuff, and he delights in some stuff. Uh, but that's kind of what, on surface level, we're going to see. And when we slow down, which is something we should do a lot more when we read the Bible, we slow down and really think about what, what, what's, what the weight is of the words that are at stake here. Uh, what the parallelism within the, uh, the, the, the poetry is here. Uh, what, how things are being compared and contrasted to each other, we're going to see that the psalmist says, here are two options, a blessed way, a righteous way, and a cursed way, uh, a, a wicked way. But really, he's presenting it as though the scale is just overwhelmingly in favor of choosing the blessed direction. So in a very wise way that a teacher would do, the psalmist is giving us an option, two options. But the way he describes these, he's really urging us to live a righteous life urging us to live a blessed life. So he doesn't directly say it, but as we go through this, we'll find very clearly that we are to take the way of the blessed man and do all he does for the reasons that he does them. So let's jump into the blessed way. What is, what is it that this man does? This idea of blessing, blessed is the man, this word blessed, it begins so many of the Psalms. This is a key throughout all of the Psalms. We see many of the words in this chapter 
uh, echoed throughout the Psalms and developed more. We see him go through the prophets into the New Testaments. Uh, Blessed is the man. What is he doing? Well, when we read ahead, we find out uh, he's not really doing a whole lot. He's actually given a description of what he doesn't do. Blessed are the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor, stand, uh, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So the blessed man is not uh, walking or standing or sitting in the way of, I don't know, wickedness or scoffing or, or evil. He's not doing a bunch of this. He's marked by abstaining from things. Now, before we go too far and say, okay, we just got to, you know, get rid of the secular world, that's not exactly what it's saying here. The blessed man is not doing a bunch of stuff. He's not going the way of the wicked. And we might think, why? I mean, this is a great, great question. Why is he not doing anything? Why, why, why didn't we just get a list of what we're supposed to do and roll with it? Because that's not the way that God wants to train our hearts. See, he doesn't just give us the list of things to do. And maybe you're in a spot right now where, where, where you don't know which way to go, so you actually are actively abstaining from everything. I don't know what my next step is in my Christian walk. I feel like I'm in this stagnant space, and I know myself that I will probably screw up the next thing that I do. And so I just kind of feel comfortable not stretching myself because I don't want to mess up. That's one way we can go about it. Maybe that's really a way you think about your life. Maybe the blessed man is thinking this way. I don't think so. Uh, maybe this guy is the most disciplined guy in the world and he is able to walk perfectly. Well, I don't think that's the case, although I do think if we go that route, it does point to Christ who did this, and I think that that's intentional. So why is the blessed man marked by not doing anything? Well, we find out that the blessed man is not marked by what he does, by what he but by what he is. See, one of the keys to the Psalms, and this is a good one to write down, is that the Psalms are not teaching us what to do. The Psalms are not first teaching us what to do. Rather, the Psalms are teaching us how to be. They're not teaching us what to do, but they're teaching us how to be. What does that mean? It means that rather than describing what this blessed man does, we're going to find out who he is. Where is his heart? Where is his identity? Where is his joy? Where are his loves? Verse 2, it says what the blessed man is doing. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The blessed man's not doing this stuff. He's not taking counsel from anyone and everyone. He's not walking in, in examples of people that may be successful but are inherently wicked. He's not, he's not following a, a cruel business plan of progression in his life because he's set his heart on the law of the Lord. That's what the blessed man is doing. He's focusing his energy on his heart in the law of God. So it says his heart is there. His delight is there. And so what does he do? He meditates on it day and night. I think this is hope for me. When I, I, sometimes I feel like I'm not uh, the greatest uh, reader, maybe the most disciplined reader. Um, there, there are times where I try and do evening devotions only to fall asleep. Uh, oh, that's a horrible one. Or if you're not a morning person, you go the other way around uh, with that in the morning falling asleep. Reading, I just don't read well. Well, well, well there's great joy in this uh, because it doesn't say uh, and on his law he reads day and night, does it? 
It says he meditates on this. There's something different. We, we think of Bible study and, and thinking about reading the Bible often, that I have to read X amount of passages uh, today, check it, and keep moving. Now, there are Bible apps that do this, and they're really helpful. If that's your thing, that's great. I've found in my own life, and I'm not saying this is for everyone, that reading smaller portions and meditating on them actually produces more fruit in my life. I could try and memorize all of, you know, the first 10 chapters of, of Psalms, or I could read maybe chapter 1, verse 1, and ask myself all day long, meditating on the words of what does it mean to be blessed? That's a different way that I've gone about it. Uh, so if you're not a reader, it's not an out. He meditates on the law day and night. There's something that's amazing with this. I, I love just in this, in this comparison between uh, verse 1 and verse 2. We see this description of this guy. He's not doing something because his love is somewhere else. I think sometimes we, we think that we, 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 are, we are thinking things, that we, we, we make logical decisions. Oftentimes, before we make those logical decisions and set our path and our discipline for life, our hearts are affected. Our hearts want to go a certain way. I have never been able to stay on like a, a solid like diet plan because I've never really been compelled to do that. Um, I've never been able to stay on an exercise plan. I mean, look at me. I'm massive. Uh, because I've never been compelled to. I just don't feel the need to do that. I don't know why people bench press. It doesn't make any sense to me. My heart is not compelled to that. But some people, it is, and so they do. You find that what we do is first what we love. And so the remedy for this, this, this lopsided scale, the invitation here is not choose one way or the other, but really it's you need to choose the blessed way, and the blessed way is a wholehearted devotion to God and his word. And that's how we get there. There's a, uh, there's a, uh, a man, a theologian named Thomas Chalmers. He writes, uh, he writes of this thing called an expulsive power of a new affection. That's exactly what the psalmist is writing about here. He says that there is a new affection in his life. He doesn't want success measured by the world. Yeah, maybe that's nice. But he is measuring his success by Christian virtue. He wants to be righteous. And so he, he, he delights in this pursuit. And sometimes it costs him going to that extra meeting. Sometimes it costs him scheduling a bunch of early morning meetings because he needs to keep that clean because that's where he needs to get into the law of the Lord. Sometimes it means not grabbing fast food for the whole family, but sitting down at a family meal, reading a verse and saying, what does that mean for our family? Sometimes he's going to have to measure his life according to things that the world says, this is not our way. He delights in the law of the Lord. And because, as Thomas Chalmers says, this, 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 this delight wells up within him, it has an expulsive power. It pushes out the things. So when you have such a rich time where you, where you hear, I just heard my, my daughters, I've never heard them say it. They were, they were like from the drum set. I heard them doing the confession. It's like, whoa, you know that. So that's a new thing for our family. There's such delight in that. Like, let's keep doing this. If you have those, those milestones, those moments, let's keep doing that. There's an expulsive power then. I don't want to teach my kids something that's less than that. They're finding richness in that. And maybe you found richness somewhere. The first time you realized, wait, God loves me just who I am? There's richness in that. Keep going to that. We don't need to, to band-aid that with, with, with loves from somewhere else. We don't need to pursue love and worth somewhere else. 
there's this expulsive power. When Christ is there, he's so sufficient, so all-encompassing. His love is so abundant. It, it has to make room for all of the bad things that we have options to run after. All right, that's a lot about the blessed man. We'll keep cruising here. Uh, uh, no, we won't stop with the blessed man. We'll keep cruising into verse 3, but we still got more. Uh, what is his outcome? What is the outcome of this man who delights in this? Look at this image. He is like a tree planted in streams of water. So I would call this something uh, along the lines of uh, a saturated fruitfulness. Uh, He's so saturated in the word of God. He's so saturated in his law, in the gospel, that he can't but help produce fruit in season and out of season. He can't not help prosper in all he does. Uh, A great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he spoke to, uh, to his students in how he, uh, when he knows he's ready to speak on something, ready to talk about something. He said, let us, dear brethren, try to get saturated with the gospel. He says, I, I can find that I preach best when I manage to lie a soak in my text. I like to get a text and find out its meaning and its bearing and so on. And then after I have bathed in it, I delight to lie down in it. And let it soak into me. It softens me. It hardens me. Or it does whatever it ought to do to me. And then and only then can I talk about it. It says, I like to just sit there in it. I like to read it. I like to to marinate, to soak, to saturate myself in it. It's just like this image here of the trees with its roots going out into the living waters, going out to the truth that's there and sucking it in every day. It becomes part of you. Um, uh, an example of this, if you've ever done the home experiment uh, uh, where you take colored water, I think it's like colored water and you put celery in it and it like sucks it up and then it kind of starts to change color. That's exactly it. Whether it's Spurgeon or the celery, I think it's the same analogy there. We slowly suck up that, that water. We slowly become part of that. And like that celery, it goes in green and you, you, know, you dye it purple or whatever. You pull it out, it's something else. That's how the word of God works in our lives. But if we're not sucking it up, if we're not saturating ourselves in it, if we're not meditating on it and bathing in it and soaking in it, whether we get our, our worksheet done or not, we let it sit there and shape us slowly, whether we know it or not, it will work into our subconscious. It will work into our soul. It will work into our framework. It will pour over us over and over again so that we begin to be able to pursue God's own heart in the way he wants. And in accordance to uh, Psalm 1 here, we begin to not only realize how good his instruction is, but we begin to delight in the law of the Lord. But when we have that kind of saturation, there's also a fruitfulness, a fruitfulness that is unhindered by any, uh, any situation or environment or circumstance or, 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 or weather change. We read uh, the prophet Jeremiah speaking a similar language. He develops it actually a little bit more in Jeremiah 17. It's up on the screen for you. I'll read it now. He says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by its stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green. And it's not anxious in the year of drought for, its, uh, for it does not cease to bear fruit. I love the couple additions that are there from Psalm 1. 
He sends out its roots into the stream. He doesn't fear when the heat comes. I mean, this is, this is James screaming at us from, from the New Testament saying, whenever there are trials or temptations, lean into this. It doesn't matter what trials or temptations come your way because you are rooted in something good and lasting. The heat of the trials and temptations will not wither you because you have the life and, 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 the, and the food and the nourishment of Christ. He's not anxious about the year of drought. He's not anxious whether his career dries up, whether his relationships dry up, whether his finances dry up, because he does not cease to bear fruit. So that's a different kind of fruit. What is that fruit? I think the psalmist, if we go back to that, the psalmist says, uh, in all that he does, he prospers. See, this isn't some kind of uh, triumphalism. This isn't some kind of prosperity gospel. It's not talking about if you read the Bible, you'll, uh, you'll succeed in everything. He's saying that if you read the Bible, if you delight in the law of the Lord, you begin to align yourself to the will of God. And the will of God is that people be saved. <laughs> You'd start to do things for the purposes of God. You start to do things for the trajectory of God and whether what is the first Corinthians 10 says, and whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, you begin to do those things for the glory of God. See, this is how you prosper in life. This is not how the world measures this. This is, we've already gotten rid of that in verse one, right? This is how we prosper as Christians. This is what we measure as Christians. Our delight in the Lord will shape the trajectory of our life. We will begin to choose what's right, what's pleasing, what's good, because we have to go back to the text and it will tell us whether we are right and whether we are wrong. It will always drive us. The law has this crazy function it does. It always drives us to humility. It always drives us back to a need for our Savior. So now we turn to the wicked. We'll continue reading. The wicked aren't like that. Verses 4 and 5. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. I love how the poetry works here. Like, this is poetry. You have to think creatively about this. You have to meditate on it. Uh, okay, if we highlight everything that's talked about the blessed man, that's three verses. I mean, that's a whole bunch of lines. And then we get to verse 4. The wicked aren't like this. They're like chaff. They blow away. Like the psalmist is saying from these pages, like if you, if you weren't compelled by this beautiful vision of what the blessed man is and has and, and his destiny here, uh, then, then you don't really need to, like, I don't know what I can say to you to get you to not be wicked. Like we don't need to talk about this guy because this is so much better. That's different than Americans in 2018. We oftentimes like talk about how bad something is. Like this is really, really bad. So I'm going to choose the constructive proposal. You know, like that's totally how we reason through things. No, no, what he's saying, he's leading off. He's saying, this is fantastic. Why would you choose this? This is fantastic on the scale and it's tipped all the way. Here are your two options. You could choose blessedness. You could choose uh, uh, an oak-like foundation. You could, you could produce fruit no matter what. You, you, you could be delighting in God's law. You could be uh, standing in, in, uh, in, in, in his presence. You could be doing these things. Or you could be like chaff. You could be like a sinner. You just float away. I mean, come on. Like, it's just, this is not an equal presentation here. 
He wants us. He's urging us to go this way. But because of the sake of the text, I feel like I have to talk a little more about the wicked here. Why are the wicked just going to float away? Why do they just, uh, just, just go away? Well, it's because verse 1 says that their hearts are rotten. It says that they've got, they've got nasty hearts. How do we know this? Well, we find out what do they, what do, they do? What do they love? Verse 1, let's, let's look at that again. It says right at the end that it sits in the seat of scoffers. They're scoffing. Scoffing is, is showing us not simply what they do, but where their heart is. You see, scoffing, it could have said, like, because, or sits in the seat, you know, the blessed man doesn't sit in the seat of voice actors, you know, like, like it's an accent or something. Scoffing isn't an accent, you know, it's not like speaking a weird way. Uh, scoffing isn't like, uh, the length of it is not like he's babbling on and on and on. The, 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 the blessed man doesn't just babble on and on. Uh, the blessed man doesn't scoff because scoffing has in it the idea of, of scorn and mocking, of, saying, of, of arrogance and pride, saying, saying what is this? This is, this is worthless. On top of that, if we look a couple of words back in that verse, or in that line, we see that they're sitting, and they scoff from a place of being seated. So I'm just going to give you a key here to interpreting Bible. Uh, this posture of people is actually really important throughout the Bible. I know that's something maybe we don't get on the first go, but uh, whether someone's standing or sitting or kneeling or bowing or laying on the ground, you see a lot of times in the presence of God, there's awe that hits people down on their knees. Uh, There's reverence of someone down on their knees, sometimes all the way on their face. Uh, uh, There's God. He says, stand up. Rise is a big one. That means a lot throughout the Bible. Sitting means something. When someone is seated in the Bible, uh, oftentimes a king or a ruler it's because they finished the work victoriously. That's what's happening here. I mean, if you don't believe me, just read Psalm 2. You're going to get it big time that there is a throwdown on who is king, me or God. This is, this, is, this is preempting this. These people are scoffing because they think that they've conquered life. They're proving that they have a mastery of life. Okay, now I'm going uh, to cruise a little bit further because I want to go to the righteous way. Because, because that, that's enough for the wicked. Because I feel like we're at a spot where we can make this turn. This turn is the fact that we see that they're scoffing. And we say, oh, Whatever. There's a very big clarification we need to have to understand how to enter the righteous way. At this point in the text, I'll say where my heart is. I read this, and I read the Psalms, so many of them, and I say two errors. I assume two errors. My first error is oftentimes that I'm on the good team. I always want to be on the good team. So I read this, blesses the man. Oh, here's one about me. All right, here we go. And then we read, right? We do that. We want to be on the good team. Even if I'm not the hero of this, I at least want to be with him. Um, the other one is that, uh, is that the wicked are stupid. Uh, I think that's the other assumption we make. So not only am I blessed, but I'm also intelligent by default because they're stupid, right? Uh, that's a big problem that we have if we read the Psalms that way, if we read any of Scripture that way, if we just think of life that way. That's a big problem, and we go there oftentimes. See, the psalmist is urging us to pick this way. And he's urging us because he rightly gets it. He gets that we're all in the wicked man's spot, and he's urging us to jump ship and go to the other one. Does that make sense? He understands that we are prone to scoff. 
that oftentimes, whether I'm, no one's, none of us is just going to say, well, I'm better than Jesus. You know, like that's just ridiculous. That's not the kind of scoffing we're talking about. It's when you say like, uh, this part of the church is, is weird. I could do that better. Uh, this part of this family's life is weird. I don't get their marriage. That seems super dysfunctional. Whatever. At least ours is good. You know, that kind of, that's scoffing. That's scoffing. Uh, why do they teach this way? That's a poor way to teach this stuff. Why do they preach this way? Why does our, why does our community group leader, our life group leader, why, why don't they get this stuff a little deeper? There's some of that. When there's that, that, that heart of, I could do this better, or this is just really bad. There is no good way. That's scoffing that we do. Our culture breeds cynicism. Our culture encourages us to go that way, that critical way. That's low-level scoffing. And what that does is we drink that scoffing so much, little bits at a time, And like the celery, pretty soon, our hearts get rotten. We have to guard against that. And this is why I now move to the righteous way. Because if we assume now, rightly, that we're all wicked, and this is our decision today and every day that follows, which path we will take, now we're on to the right way that the Psalms are conditioning us. So I'm going to assume we're all wicked, and we all want to go there. How do we get there? Because I can't just say, okay, here's how you do it. You delight in the law of the Lord. Thanks, Pastor. That's so helpful. Uh, just delight, guys. Just delight. Uh, how, do we, how do we get there? Well, Christ. Christ is the answer. Christ is the point and the pattern of every text of Scripture. The whole thing is about him, uh, and he is right here. Uh, this is pointing to him uh, left and right all over the text. I'll give you three ways that this is pointing to Jesus Christ as the point of this. And if we, if we go to this as just, I'm a good Christian, this is never going to give us sustainable joy. Uh, but if we go to this text as, uh, as the idea that Christ is our delight, and when we look into the law, we get to see him revealed in the law. Oh, now we're on to something that is compelling. Now we're on to a journey, an investigation, a, a mystery of God's love and his justice. So uh, the blessed man, I mean, look at these things that he does. Christ is the blessed man. He walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He stands not in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. Christ is the only one who lived that perfect life. However, we find that the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the wicked will perish. There's this whole language of righteousness. Christ, as that blessed man, came, and because of the mysterious love, holiness, justice of God, he became that sin for us, that we could be sinners who stand in the congregation of the righteous. He makes that line of this psalm work because it's not as though we are actually sinners, not actually, or, and actually standing in the, the, the congregation of the righteous. Because of what Christ does on the cross as the blessed man who lived a perfect life, he takes that sin as though it's his, dies, and then gives us that righteousness as though it's ours. So that you and I, as sinners, we've just confessed that, can in fact be seen as righteous and stand in the congregation of the righteous. And that's, that's glorious. He makes possible this trajectory of the righteous way in our lives. doesn't just say you're all wicked. He makes possible that, but that's not it. Later on in, in John, he's going to explain himself as the way to get there. We talk about all this ways. There's a way of sinners 
There's a way of the righteous. There's a way of the wicked. And Jesus says, I am that way of righteousness. I make possible by being the blessed man who lays his life down so that your, my, uh, your sin could be, be taken on me and my righteousness be seen on you. I make it possible that you can stand in the congregation of the righteous. I make a way for that by confessing your sins, by believing that that was real and effectual in your life. But then that, that may be where you're at. That may be where you're at. You're not sure if you're a Christian or not. That's what I'm talking about right here. Christ has done all that. Christ has made that possible. But then what do you say? You know, okay, so I'm with you, Pastor. We, we, this is beautiful. I want to delight in this, but I've already become a Christian. What's left there? Christ then says, I am the fulfillment of the law. He gives us something to do every day, something to meditate on and delight in. What is the point of the law? The point of the law, uh, concisely, is, is, uh, is something that, that, that points out uh, the holy nature of God. God gives requirements because he's holy. If you want to be holy, and this is all of Leviticus, uh, be holy because I am holy. Here are ways you can do that. So the law points out our holiness, but because we are smart and we can step outside of our greedy selves sometimes and see that we don't fulfill those laws, the law shows that we need a savior. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law shows the holiness of God the, sin of, the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need for a Savior. Why can the psalmist delight in the law of the Lord? Because it shows that we need a Savior. Every day the law of the Lord brings us back to a place of humility. That's why scoffing is so ridiculous in this. How can you possibly scoff when you read the Bible and it says, you are a sinner and you need Christ? What am I doing to get out of that and thinking that I've got it mastered? The law is ultimately a place of Christian humility and dependence on Christ. We can have confidence in Christ. And we can also have a humility in self. We can have that balance of confidence and humility because we know that we can put it on someone who, is, who can stand the judgment, someone who can stand with the righteous, someone who, uh, who will not perish but who will have everlasting life. We delight in the scriptures. We delight in the law because they point us to Christ. And I'll end with that. I'll end with that, with that rally cry there from Ephesians because this language of sitting is huge. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 says, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above any ruler, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come, in, over everything, Christ, we find, is the one seated. He is the victorious one. It's laid out clearly in Scripture that when we meditate in and delight on the law of the Lord, we are invited into a humble reliance and confidence on Christ and the more we go to that, the more our hearts are trained to thirst for, to hunger for the instruction of our Lord. So how do we do that? How do we do that today? How do we do that tomorrow morning? Well, first, we read it. Read it multiple times. Read it slowly. Read different portion sizes. Read different, read different versions of it. Ask good questions. Slow down. Uh, we pray it. The Lord's Prayer gives us instruction on what to look for in prayer. 
We can look at these things. What do we need to pray for here? I need to pray that I don't scoff. I need to pray that I, that I delight in the law of the Lord. And then we apply it. How do I live this out? How do I refrain from all those ways I'm going to go to at lunch this afternoon, this week, of all of those ways that verse 1 tells me the blessed man doesn't go? We look at it, and it gives us the direction of life. This is the righteous way. This is the way that the psalmist wants us to go. So now, I said we read it. I think we should pray it right now. So brothers and sisters, I'd ask that you bow your heads as we pray the words of Scripture now.